You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. Well, good day there. It's great to be with you. My name is Tim, and as you've heard, today we're thinking about human rights. See, on the 10th of December every year, people around the world celebrate what is called International Human Rights Day. Uh, it marks the anniversary of the day in 1948 when the UN General Assembly adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so every year there's a slightly different theme that goes along with the day. I kind of looked through some of them from the past. 2012, it was My Voice Counts. 2015, it was Our Rights, Our Freedoms. Last year, uh, the slogan that went along with the day was All Human, All Equal. All Human, All Equal. There's a beautiful simplicity to that statement, isn't there? It also captures a beautiful truth. Everyone is human and all humans have equal rights. Now, if you don't know uh, much about the UN or the Declaration of Human Rights, uh, I'll tell you a bit about it as we go on. But in short, the Declaration holds out a vision of a fair and just society in which everyone has access to certain economic, social, political, cultural and civic rights. And these rights, it's believed, give people uh, a life free from want and fear. Uh, what's more, the Declaration suggests that these rights... They're not just the privilege for a select few. They're not just the rights of certain countries. No, no, no. These are inalienable rights, which are for all people from every country and at every time. Or in the language of the Declaration, they are for people of every race, colour, sex, language, religion, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth or other status. Again, these rights are for all humans and all humans are equal in rights. Now, uh, irrespective of whether you know much about the Declaration or the UN, uh, it's fairly uncontroversial to say that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights has had quite a shaping and a contributing uh, influence on the human rights culture that we currently live in. Now, if you're kind of sitting there going, well, what does he mean by a human rights culture? Uh, let me give you a quote just to sort of flesh it out a bit more, maybe it'll illustrate. Uh, this is from a lady named Natasha Moore from an article on the Gospel Coalition website. She writes this, When we reach for ways to articulate the wrong we do to one another, why it's wrong, and how things should be instead, the default shelf we reach for is the language of human rights. I think she's right. Even in Australia, where we don't have a national charter or a bill of rights, and we'll talk about that a little later, uh, we still almost instinctively think in the category of rights. And so we're used to people campaigning for women's rights or reproductive rights or civil rights or more recently LGBT rights. In fact, that's partly why I wanted to look at this topic today. Because uh, as I was preparing for the series, I, I just kept noticing the language of human rights just kept coming up when people were trying to make or uh, argue their case. And so, for example, racism was often a matter of civil rights. Abortion was a matter of reproductive rights. Gay marriage was an issue of LGBT rights. And free speech an issue of human rights. And what's more, I noticed the way that the language of human rights, it, it, it would often be used in a way to 
are shut down or, or sometimes win an argument. I'm just saying I'm not the only person who's noticed that. Uh, so, for example, in his book, Human Rights, Andrew Clapham, whom I'm almost certain is a secular author, um, there's no indication he's a, a Christian, he writes this, he says, playing the human rights card can be persuasive, sometimes even conclusive, in contemporary decision-making. This is one aspect of what makes the moral force of human rights so attractive. Human rights help you to win arguments, and sometimes to change the way things are done. It's a fascinating insight, isn't it? Uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks back with the power of hashtag thinking. You know, all human, all equal. That's a hashtag, in, eff in essence. And the power of hashtag thinking is it enables you to shut arguments down. And so human rights is not just about ending tyranny and torture in far corners of the earth, although it is about that. It's also in the hands of some people today become a trump card that you can play anytime you want to win an argument. And that is particularly why I wanted us to explore it today. Because even for all the remarkable good that has been done around the world in the name of human rights, and there's a lot of it, what those rights are and why they exist is a conversation we need to be allowed to have together. And so I want to do three things together today. Number one, I want to give you a brief history of the human rights movement. Number two, I want to explore two challenges to the current human rights movement. And then third, and finally, I want to finish with a brief theology of human rights. And so I'm going to save the Bible for the end, you know, a little special treat at the end. So, um, there won't be heaps of Bible in the start, but I will promise that I'll finish with some at the end. So uh, history, two problems, brief theology of rights. Let's jump in. Most people uh, suggest that the father of human rights is a guy named John Locke. He's an English philosopher uh, from the 17th century. I'll spare you the details or the backstory, if you like, but in 1689, Locke claims that everyone was born with certain natural or inalienable rights, and he articulated the three. He said life, liberty, and property. Now, if you're thinking, you know, what exactly does rights mean? Like, that's what are rights? Well, it's sometimes helpful to think about rights and obligations as reciprocal. And so they're, they're two sides of the same coin. In other words, if someone has the right to life, that's another way of saying everyone else is obligated not to take that life from them. Or if someone has a, a right to property, uh, it's another way of saying that everyone else is obligated not to take that property from them. Now, that seems like kind of a fairly straightforward, simplistic thing to say. You've got to remember the times. Uh, this is a time when kings, when governments, when rulers are far more likely to uh, you know, kill or confiscate property than they might be today. But just as importantly, and this is, this is helpful to understand, so pay attention, it implies a certain view of government. It implies a certain responsibility of your ruler so you think about it, if human beings are born with certain inalienable rights, then part of a ruler's job, part of, the rule, part of a government's job will be to protect your rights and perhaps even to provide for your rights. And what's more, if they fail to do that, 
the argument goes, there is a case to be made that it's not just right, but also perhaps even necessary to revolt in the event that those rights are not being met. So that's John Locke, right? He kind of does some of the heavy lifting in terms of the theoretical stuff. But his ideas are then picked up and start to be implemented by two quite well-known revolutionaries, at least thanks to Hamilton. The first is Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson coming home. About 100 years after Locke, Thomas Jefferson comes along. He picks up Locke's ideas and he puts them in the uh, Declaration of Independence. And so the second line of the Declaration of Independence for the US reads like this. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men <clears throat> are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Notice he's swapped out the right to property for the right to the pursuit of happiness, but same basic idea is there. These are inalienable rights. He also says they're self-evident and that we are endowed with them by our creator. We'll come back to that. So the first guy, that's uh, Jefferson. The second is 10 years after Jefferson, uh, Marquez de Lafayette. I reckon Sam over there could probably do the words. <laughs> Maybe afterwards, Sam, you could do it for us, mate. <laughs> anyway, that guy, um, he comes along and he, he basically puts a similar but a secular version of that statement into the, what's it called, Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, which is the French uh, version of it. Uh, it reads, men are born and remain free and equal in rights. Right, so there's some kind of just some of the early foundational stuff. John Locke comes up with the heavy lifting on the um, philosophical side of the theory and says we've all got inalienable rights. They have political implications. And then Jefferson and Lafayette come along and kind of embed them in the founding documents of America and France. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to uh, kind of speed through the 1800s, and I want to come to uh, the end of the Second World War. So World War I has happened, heaps of people have been killed. Then a Second World War happens, it's 1945, uh, the war has just ended, millions of people in the last 30 or 40 years have been slaughtered, uh, the Nazis have been defeated, and so uh, the Allied powers are desperate they are absolutely desperate to come up with some kind of agreement that will bring about lasting peace and that is not going to plunge the world back into some form of World War III. And so what do they do? Well, they come together, uh, they form the United Nations, and then as the United Nations, they want to come up with some kind of Bill of Rights, some kind of document that all the member states will agree to and will kind of propagate this world peace. And so what they come up with is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, it has 30 rights, so 30 articles in it, uh, rather than three, life, liberty, and right to property. It has 30, uh, which according to the document, everyone is entitled to, irrespective of race, color, sex, language, or religion. And the first article, you can look it up during the week, the first article is phrased in language that we're pretty familiar with by now, because it's almost identical to the French one. Universal Declaration of Human Rights begins, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. Now, as it turns out, 
the declaration is just that. It's just a declaration. In other words, it's not actually legally, legally binding on any of the nations that adopt it. Having said that, along with it has come in its wake a certain covenants which effectively uh, make any of the rights in the covenants legally binding on the nations that sign off on them. And so from what I can tell, Australia has pretty much signed up to all of them, which effectively means our government has said, you know what, we are going to do what we can and what's in our power to uh, protect and perhaps even provide for the rights of our citizens. And should we fail to do that, uh, we kind of, the UN has permission perhaps to tell us off and maybe even in extreme cases to intervene. Having said that, it's worth knowing Australia doesn't have a national charter or bill of rights. Um, some of the states do, but New South Wales doesn't. Uh, in other words, even though we've signed off on the declaration, there is no kind of list articulating all the rights of someone in Australia. Um, in fact, from what I can tell, we're the only Western liberal democracy that doesn't have one. So, for example, uh, countries like Canada, US, South Africa, UK, New Zealand, India, Brazil, Hong Kong, and several others do have one. That's not for lack of trying. People have tried to get it through, but at the moment we don't have one. But that's not to say that none of our rights are protected by law. Uh, at least four, from what I can tell, uh, from what I've read, are protected by the Australian Constitution. So you have legally protected the right to vote, the right to trial by jury for certain offences, uh, a limited protection of freedom of religion, and an implied right of political communication. But from a technical perspective, uh, Australians don't really have uh, s uh, kind of many of the rights that we assume we have, uh, we don't at least have strict legal protection for. And so, for example, free speech or the, the right uh, to religious freedom, we don't, strictly speaking, have protection for. That's partly why, just as an aside, the Religious Discrimination Bill was tried to kind of get through Parliament earlier in the year, although, as you probably know, it sort of fell apart. But there you have it, kind of brief history of human rights and where things are up to in Australia. Second thing I want to do is, as I said, just, just explore two of the sort of challenges that are being faced, I think, by the modern human rights movement. Uh, they are going to be two separate but, I think, related challenges. The first is a question of foundations. See, the foundational belief at the heart of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is that we're all born equal in dignity and rights. And I say that's foundational because it's the first article and it seems pretty clear that all the others are based off that first one. It's also why the slogan from last year is all human, all equal. Now, just to be clear, I'm 100% on board with that. Uh, I agree with it. But it is worth acknowledging that despite what Thomas Jefferson said, that is not self-evident. Uh, at least it hasn't been self-evident uh, for a lot of the people throughout history. And so, for example, consider the culture that Jesus was born into. Right? Ancient Greek and ancient Roman cultures were quite profoundly influenced by philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. Just have a listen to something that Plato says. So Plato says, nature herself intimates that it is just 
for the better to have more than the worse, the more powerful than the weaker. Justice consists in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. Right, notice the language. Nature herself intimates. In other words, if you'd asked Plato, what is self-evident to you? He would have said inequality. He says nature itself teaches us that. Right As you look around, Plato would say, it's just obvious. Uh, there are superior sexes, men over women, superior races, Greeks over barbarians, superior classes, the free over slaves. Nature teaches it, would say Plato. Now, I know that that's fairly controversial for us and offensive, and so it is. But it was somewhat self-evident to people around Plato's time. Uh, in his book, Inventing the Individual, Larry Sadentop says, at the core of ancient thinking was the assumption of natural inequality. I suppose, suppose we just kind of at this point say, what happened? How did we go from self-evident inequality to self-evident equality? Well, the short answer is Christianity happened. In particular, Christianity brings two things with it that radically turn the assumptions of the ancient world upside down. The first is the view that all people are made in the image and likeness of God and therefore have equal worth and dignity. And the second is a concern for the weak and the vulnerable and the importance of using your power to protect and serve them. Now, I don't have time uh, to trace through all the ways in which those beliefs end up transforming the ancient world. But if you want to chase it up yourself, let me recommend two books. Number one, it's a book by a Christian author. Second one's by a non-Christian. First one's a Christian, Glenn Scrivener. The book is The Air We Breathe. Helpful, fairly simple, straightforward book. The second one, much larger book. I think it's like a thousand pages. It's by Tom Holland. It's called Dominion. Again, first is a Christian book, the second is a non-Christian book. But both of them, in their own ways, make the point that the only reason that anyone, or at least the majority of people today, believe in the equality of human beings as having dignity and worth is because of the influence of Christianity on their thinking. And so that means we can say, look, even if Locke was the first person to do the heavy lifting in terms of the theory, you know, inalienable rights... His views on equality and dignity only came about because of the influence of Christianity on his thinking, and so too with Jefferson. Right? He writes in the Declaration of Independence that these things have been endowed by their creator. Now, most people say he's not a Christian, but his view of the world and his view of the human being is profoundly shaped by the culture around him, which was Christian. All of that to say, if you're a Christian... And you believe, as I suspect you do, in the equality and the dignity of every human being, then the good news is that your beliefs are consistent with your worldview. Although I should say, simply believing that all human beings are equal doesn't guarantee that you'll actually treat all human beings as equal, which is arguably just as, if not more, important. But at least you've got logical reasons and powerful resources for doing so. All people, regardless of their sex, their colour, their language, their religion, are created in the image and likeness of God. But suppose you're an atheist or a metaphysical naturalist, which is basically, I just means you think that the physical world is all that exists. 
It's worth asking what justification you might have for believing in the inherent dignity and equality of all people. Now, I'm assuming you believe it to be true, and you probably act on it as well, for which I'm incredibly thankful. But again, have you ever paused to just stop and ask yourself why you believe that and why you act the way you do? See, in his book, Atheist Overreach, Christian Smith has an entire chapter in which he tries to come up with rational reasons for why an atheist or metaphysical naturalist could believe in universal benevolence and human rights. So he kind of goes through some of the, the typical explanations like, you know, it was evolutionarily useful, it's part of a social contract, he even considers something called moral realism. But at the end of the chapter, he basically just concludes, uh, it just doesn't rationally justify a commitment to universal benevolence and human rights. Now, that's coming from a Christian author. And so maybe someone or you say, yeah, yeah, you know, of course the Christian's going to say that. They're just trying to defend their own. Um, but have a listen to what Israel Harari, uh, sorry, Israeli, Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harari says in his book, Homo Sapiens, kind of one of bestsellers. He writes this, most legal systems in the world today are based on a belief in human rights. But what are human rights? Human rights, like God and heaven, are just a story that we've invented. They're not an objective reality. They're not a biological fact about Homo sapiens. Right, take a human being, cut him open, look inside. You'll find the heart, the kidneys, neurons, hormones, DNA, but you won't find any rights. According to Harari, the concept of human rights is just a make-believe story that people came up with generations ago and we've decided to believe in. Now again, that doesn't suggest that secular people can't believe in human rights and act as if they're true and therefore treat everyone with equal dignity and respect. Many do and many, uh, many do believe it and many act like that. And again, praise God. But is to say that I'm not at all convinced they have any rational reasons for doing so. And therefore, human rights just ends up being effectively a useful make-believe, which is a position with no evidence to back it up, but instead a position of faith. So I framed all this as a challenge, a challenge to the modern human rights movement. Why is that a challenge? Well, it's a challenge because the more you try to demand that governments around the world and people more generally honour and protect the rights of their citizens, the more people are going to ask why. So, for example, in 1981, the Iranian representative to the UN said, the Declaration of Human Rights is a secular understanding of the Judeo-Christian tradition, which couldn't be implemented by Muslims without trespassing Islamic law. Now, I don't know if he's right about the Islamic law bit, but he's basically right about the Declaration. It really is just a secular version of the Christian worldview. Or to borrow language from Mark says, it's a vision of the kingdom just with no king. That's what I'm saying. It's not like the authors of the Declaration were unaware of the challenges, even at its founding. Uh, one of the key drafters was a guy named Jacques Maritain. He famously said, yeah, yeah, we agree about the rights on the condition that no one asks us why. It's hard to see how much longer that could possibly last, uh, particularly as the West moves further and further away from its Christian heritage. 
it's hard to see how we're going to be able to maintain a belief in the equality of all human beings when, at least from a secular perspective, it doesn't have any foundational beliefs to justify it. Uh, Nick Spencer, in his book, The Evolution of the West, puts it this way. If we cannot agree about those underpinnings, he's talking about the foundations, it will not result in immediate catastrophe, but the more weight we pile on the edifice, the more reason we have to attend to them. Secular advocates of human rights may find the solution in the very religion they deride. There's the first challenge. I think many in the modern human rights movement have no rational grounds for justifying their belief in the equality of all people. What's the second challenge? Well, the second challenge, as I said, it is different, but it's related to the first. And it's the question of content. In other words, if it's true that all human beings are born with equal dignity and rights, the question is, what exactly are those rights? So, for example, uh, the Universal Declaration lists 30 rights, right? Remember, not three, but 30. Now, I encourage you to go home this week, maybe after the surface, just have a read through the 30 articles. But let me tell you two that stuck out to me as I read them. Article 24 is the right to paid holidays. Article 27 is the right to enjoy the arts. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for enjoying a paid holiday and enjoying good culture. But can we really say that that is an inalienable right? Can we really say that people in ancient times who didn't experience those things were being deprived of a fundamental human right? Or is it possible that we've maybe started to confuse the blessings of modernity with human rights? See, as I read through the document, I found myself saying a hearty amen to the whole thing. But again, at the end of the day, it feels far more like an aspirational vision of the good life than a list of unalienable rights that we all possess from birth. It's worth knowing there was even debate about what things should go in the document at its founding. Uh, so there's 30 rights. Most people kind of categorize them into five different areas, civil, political, economic, social, and cultural. The thing is, when it's being drafted, the capitalist countries like the US and the UK, they were really big on wanting the civil and political rights. They were all for those. Whereas the socialist states, the communist ones, like the USSR, wanted the economic and the social rights. And furthermore, some of the rights, like the right to property, has just ended up being so controversial that it hasn't made its way into any of the covenants that are legally binding on the countries. Everyone's kind of okay in it on theory, just don't hold us accountable to the right to property, no way. All of which raises the question, how do you decide what the contents of your human rights are? But even if you want to reject the previous premise of my last point that, and say, no, 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 the fact that human beings are created equal or are equal is self-evident, okay, but it's still not at all self-evident what rights spring from that. And so, for example, um, this is why some people in kind of a theory will, will focus less on the specific rights themselves and more on the dignity. And I've got a quote for you on this as well. Uh, from Andrew Clapp, and again, his book was Human Rights. Uh, it says, the dignity approach is, perhaps in this respect, more preferable than delineating a number of core rights, something which inevitably involves awkward and simplistic choices. 
in that, among other things, different rights matter differently to different people in different times. All rights matter equally, and it is rather each right that has a core and a penumbra. I had to look that word up, where the core is precisely that area at which dignity is at stake. Now, if that doesn't make any sense to you, he's basically saying at the centre of the human rights movement is this unshakable, firm conviction in the dignity of the individual. And then what each of the rights are trying to do is protect that dignity just from different angles and, and different ways, which again is a good idea, but it still ends up being very difficult to figure out how do you justify why some things are rights and other things are just desires. And so for example, uh, the Czech writer Milan Kundera uh, once wrote about kind of just this increasing and prolific use of the language of human rights. Look at what he says. He says, I don't know a single politician who doesn't mention 10 times a day the fight for human rights or violation of human rights. But the more, for human, sorry, the, the more the fight for human rights gains in popularity, the more it loses any concrete content, becoming a kind of universal stance of everyone toward everything, a kind of energy that turns all human desires into rights. He goes on. The world has become a man's right and everything in it, has become a right. The desire for love, the right to love. The desire for rest, the right to rest. The desire for friendship, the right to friendship. The desire to exceed the speed limit, the right to exceed the speed limit. I don't know where that came from. The desire for happiness, the right for happiness. Now, it's hyperbolic, but you get the point. How do you make the decisions? Uh, this is why I said before, kind of these are two challenges, but they're related. The, the foundation piece is related to the content piece. Because if you can't agree on the foundations of your rights, we'll never agree on the content of our rights. I think, I think we see this playing out, or at least we saw it playing out in the debate around gay marriage several years ago. See, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights includes the right to marry. So it's Article 16. I'll read you the whole thing. It says this, Men and women of full age, without any limitation due to race, nationality or religion, have the right to marry and to found a family. They are entitled to equal rights as to marriage, during marriage and at its dissolution. Marriage shall be entered into only with the free and full consent of the intending spouses. The family is the natural and fundamental group unit of society and is entitled to protection by society excuse me, and the state. Now, I don't know all the intentions of the authors, but it seems pretty likely that their primary purpose with drafting that is uh, to allow for interracial marriages, to make sure they're not banned, and probably in particular to protect women from being forced into marriage, and in particular young and underage women. And what's more, uh, even though they, they don't define marriage, they don't define the family, uh, given the time at which it's written, it's probably uncontroversial to say they probably had in mind heterosexual marriages. The thing is, technically speaking, there is nothing at all in there that rules out gay marriage certainly if you redefine what marriage is. 
which obviously was all the conversation or the debate several years ago. Now, I think this starts to help us appreciate why so much of the Christian kind of conversation and, and argument just completely was missed by the secular argument and conversation. See, for most Christians, gay marriage was a moral issue, whereas for most secular people, it was a human rights issue, and we just kept missing each other. And frankly, at least in terms of the way that the Universal Declaration is framed, kind of was a human rights issue, at least if you redefine what marriage is. But again, I guess the question you need to ask is, should it have been? Is the right to marry whoever you want an inalienable right given to us at birth, which others have an obligation not to present, prevent you from doing? Or is it just a desire? A desire that increasing numbers of society around the world are choosing to permit by law, but a desire nonetheless. And at the end of the day, how would you know one way or the other? See, without agreeing on the foundations of human rights, there's no way to agree on the content of our rights. And so the language of human rights will forever continue to be a powerful trump card that anyone can use, no matter what side of the argument you're on, in order to shut it down or to try and win. So where are we left? Throw our hands up and say, who knows? Well, let, me, let me finish by trying to give you just a, a very brief, uh, you'll want more, I suspect. I won't give it to you. Always good to leave people hungry for more. Um, a brief theology of rights from the Bible. See, as Christians, we don't begin with our understanding of rights from the Universal Declaration. We begin with our understanding of rights from the Bible. But suppose we ask, okay, well, what exactly does the Bible say about rights? Uh, the truth is not a whole lot, actually. But uh, having said that, the American theologian John Frame helpfully makes the point that while the Bible doesn't say much about rights, it does say a lot about obligations. And so if you want to develop a theology of rights, all you need to do is flip the Bible's theology of obligations. And so, for example, if humans are obligated, because we're commanded to, love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, then you could easily say that God has the right to the exclusive worship of all humanity. Or if we say that you know, our husbands, we, uh, sorry, we are obligated to honour our mother and father, not sure where husband came from, uh, obligated to honour our mother and father, you could equally say that our mother and father, our parents have a right to our honour. Or likewise, obligated to love. If our neighbour, if we are obligated to love our neighbour as ourselves, then our neighbour has the right to be loved in the same way that we would love ourselves. Again, all of biblical commands, all of biblical law can really just be turned into a doctrine of rights, a theology of rights, such that our rights are really just the flip side of all the things that we're commanded to do and to give to others. What is that? Well, at its most simple, Jesus summarizes the law and says, love God and love others. So what does that mean for the Declaration? What does that mean for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Well, frankly, I still think it's a really useful document. But we need to make sure that we read it through the lens of the Scriptures rather than reading the Scriptures through the lens of the Universal Declaration. And what's more, I think when you do that, what you'll start to see 
is that while pretty much everything it mentions is good and worth striving for out of love for others, to call some of the things human rights is really just a category mistake. And what's more, I think the language of rights runs the risk of fueling a selfish sense of entitlement rather than cultivating a humble posture of gratefulness and thankfulness to God for the blessings and the good things we enjoy. Which brings me to the final thing I really want to just explore under this heading. Because you see, when we use the language of rights, we often do so as protesters. We often do it as protesters standing up for my rights and out of a sense of entitlement, give me what I'm due. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I'll show you an example of where Paul does it in just a moment. But it's not the only way that Christians in the Bible relate to their rights. And so what I want to do is just kind of close with these sort of two just different examples of how the Apostle Paul relates to his rights. The first you'll find in Acts 22. Uh, He is preaching in Jerusalem. He's arrested and he's about to get flogged by an army commander. And have a listen to what happens. It's Acts 22 verse 25 and 29. Kind of a funny little verse, actually, worth reading, chasing down a little later. It says, As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? And then kind of a number of things are reported, and then it finishes with, Those who are about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Now, it doesn't use the language of rights, but certainly the idea is there. As a Roman citizen, Paul had the right not to be flogged without a fair trial. What's more, he knew that right and he claims the right. Now, you might say, that's very straightforward and simple. Yes, but at the very least, what it does is help us to realize that it is entirely appropriate to claim our rights, to stand up and say, this is how I am entitled to be treated. You need to treat me in accordance with that. That's okay. And so for Paul, standing up for his rights actually enables him to keep preaching the gospel without getting flogged. But that's not always the way that Paul related to his rights. See, there's another way that he related to it, and you can see it in the passage we had read out for us before. So I won't read the whole thing, uh, but in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 4 to 5 and 12, we read this. Paul asked, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brother and Cephas? That's Peter. If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. At the start of the passage, he's making the point that as a gospel worker, he had the right to the support of the church that he was ministering to. So he had the right to be provided food and drink by them. He had the right to be able to bring a wife with him uh, if he had one, though he didn't. Uh, and kind of be put up in a home. So the church, he had the right to the church's support. But Paul knew, at least in the city of Corinth, to sort of come in and say, hey guys, you really need to support me as I minister to you. That ran the risk that some might see him as, you know, a bit of a huckster, 
an itinerant preacher, just in it for the money, just you know, selling the latest idea. And so he says, even though I had that right, actually, I'm going to forsake that right. I'm going to leave it aside. I'm willing to put up with anything so as not to hinder the gospel of Christ. In other words, Paul's stance at times was to forsake his rights for the salvation of others and the glory of God. My question is, does that remind you of anyone? He forsook his rights for the salvation of others and the glory of God. He learned it from his Lord. You see, Jesus Christ has the right to your worship. He has the right to our worship. And Colossians 2, he is, the Son is the one in whom, through whom, and for whom all things were made. And yet, what did he do with those rights? Did he stand up and demand it? Or did he lay them aside for a time and go to the cross for people like you and I that we might be saved? Grace City, the example of Jesus has to profoundly reshape and shake up the way that we think and relate to our rights. So let me close. We live in a culture obsessed with rights. We live in a human rights culture. Increasingly, people are demanding their rights and they're standing up for the rights of others in the event that they see them oppressed. And so how are we supposed to think about that? As Christians, how should we think about this movement? Well, as long as your understanding of rights is informed by the Scriptures, it's entirely appropriate to stand up for your rights and demand what you're entitled to. And furthermore, standing up for the rights of others is an important way to live out the command and your obligation to love them, particularly if they're among the weak and the vulnerable who can't stand up for themselves. But if we are going to be distinctively Christian in our approach to rights, then we also need to recognize that there will be times where we intentionally forsake our rights for the good of others, for the growth of the gospel, and for the glory of God. Because Grace City, that's what Jesus did. And if he forsook his rights for us, we too can forsake our rights for him. Why don't you join me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good and a loving God. And that you, because you have made us in your image and likeness, have bestowed upon us an incredible dignity and value and worth. Lord, we repent of the times that we have not treated all people, whether young or old, whether different religions, different colors, different social status, uh, different sexual preferences. Lord, forgive us the times where we have not treated people as equals. Would you also, Lord, help us to have our understanding of love informed and shaped by your word. Help us to honor people as we honor you and pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.